Good afternoon to all of you. You know, there's an easy way to test if uh, the word is your delight, and that's just to examine your own life of, do you neglect this throughout the week, or is it something that on a regular basis you want to consume, to feed upon the word of God? And that's what we are here to do, and we actually will finish our exposition in the book of Hebrews today, believe it or not, after so long. Um, We've been in the book of Hebrews for over three years. We took two six-month breaks, one at the end of 2019 where we had some Old Testament expositions, and then another right at the beginning of COVID had some topical messages to address the uncertainty and um, of what we were navigating and dealing with, and then had an exposition on Christ's word to his church from Revelation 1 to chapter 5. And now we've, we're concluding this. This, believe it or not, is the 78th sermon that we will have in this exposition. Um, believe me, some have gone far longer. If you think that's so long, why did it take so long to, to do that? Um, and, you know, we had 16 sermons in Hebrews 11 alone, which I said is sort of an Old Testament survey there, the Hall of Faith. So we just slowed down and really expounded the Old Testament there. But coming to the end of this letter is a bit sad for me, to be honest with you. I've benefited from this letter so much. It's had a huge impact on me personally. And in fact, I trust that each of us have a better understanding of the work of Christ and Christ's role as our great high priest. And, and, and to even understand the fullness of the gospel which is like a diamond with many, many, many facets, right? In this life, we can't grasp all of those, but I trust that uh, studying this book has, has brought us to a place to where we understand it a little fuller. So today, our actual text is going to be 22 to 25, but you'll see I'm going to survey the whole book and the major themes of the book as we go through. So let's read verse 20 to 25, Hebrews 13. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equipped you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. For I have written to you only briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all of your leaders and all of the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you so much for the richness of this entire book and even these concluding remarks filled with commands and and, uh, very instructive for us, Lord. Give us understanding this day, even as we have sung, uh, that that the word should be something that we cherish, uh, as well as your law from Psalm 119, that, Lord, we would come expectantly to hear from you through a weak vessel, and, Lord, to the end, that we would better honor and glorify you that we would love our Savior all the more who bled and died on our behalf. Lord, that we would learn to love one another all the more, that we would learn to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So give us your help, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a couple weeks ago, we did examine that glorious uh, benediction there in 20 and 21, just completely packed full of meeting. The God of peace, right? God, there's all these attributes attributed to God, but here it's the God of peace. And then the only reference to the resurrection and then the entire book of Hebrews is right here, who brought up Jesus Christ from the dead, literally to bring him from a lower place to a higher place. The Old Testament, uh, the, the Old Testament of which he's been expounding, he's drawing from these various themes that he had already covered, the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. And then he gets to the petition that may this great shepherd of the sheep and the God of peace equip you in every good thing to do his will. And so that brings us to our text today. And we're going to look at this under three simple points, really. The writer urges the hearers to bear with this exhortation. We're going to consider how the, the message of Hebrews reflects the, support, the, the superiority of Christ. And then we'll look at those final greetings in 23 to 25. So first of all, he says, bear with this word of exhortation. This, it's, I urge you. It's parakaleho in the original, which can mean to comfort, to exhort, or to urge. And here it is to urge. We saw him use the word in 3.13 encourage one another day by day. Even in 1319, if you just look up from a few weeks ago, and I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you all the sooner. And so there's an, an urging, there's a strongness here. I, but I urge you, brethren, this term of endearment to bear with this word of exhortation by addressing them in this way he's reminding them of what binds their hearts together what what has bound him to his hearers here this is was a written sermon essentially that was expected to be read right uh, to the hearers as though the author himself were the one delivering it so think of this we don't know how much time he spent on this masterpiece and yes it is a masterpiece but the idea is that he's writing to a people whom I believe he formerly had pastored, but providentially had been taken out of the way. And that's why he says, obey your leaders in 1317, your current leaders who are now shepherding you and, and over you, obey them, submit to them, for they keep watch for your very souls. And he's urging them. And so here, I believe that the letter was meant to be read in one sitting, so that's why it's really beneficial if you have the chance to take a book of the Bible and just read it from beginning to end. And that's the way the original hearers would have heard it, right? This word of exhortation, the idea is a a homily or an edifying uh, discourse of some sort. We see it in the, uh, the exact words in the book of Acts where Paul and Barnabas are invited to speak in a synagogue in 1315, after reading the law and the prophets, in the synagogue officials sent to him saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation, say it to us. And so there you've got the same term there. After going through the liturgy, as it were, in the synagogue, they were given the opportunity to give a word of exhortation. What's the very words that he chooses to use here? 
And again, I, 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 this book is a masterpiece. It really is. It's an Old Testament exposition of several texts, right? I mean, read Hebrews 1. It's a reference to, I think, six or seven different Psalms and some other Old Testament texts. You get to chapter 3, and it's an exposition of Psalm 95 with application going all the way into chapter 4. Again and again and again, he's expounding the Old Testament. It's a masterpiece. Uh, We don't know how long it took him, but he obviously, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, put this thing together. Could have taken him weeks, could have taken him months. It might have just been written out in one sitting, just coming from the overflow of his pastoral heart. As I said, I have spent 78 sermons in this, so just roughly 20 to 25 hours per sermon. You know, I've spent 1,600 hours at a minimum to preach these 78 messages and something that could be read in an hour. It's a masterpiece, and that's what God's Word is. The the harder you dig, the more gold you find, the more gemstones you find. That's why the Word shouldn't be read just flippantly. You know, read a little bit and put it down. But, but with meditation, like as a bee comes down to a flower and gets the pollen, that's what Thomas Watson, the Puritan, talked about, meditation. Like we read, but we should meditate. We should memorize the Word as well. Truth be told, in some ways I think it was a rather deep study for us but in some ways, we've only scratched the surface, <laughs> even with all of this time. So this phrase is fitting, since the writer reminds them of the sure promise, as he said in Hebrews 6.18, so that there's two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, and we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor for the soul, he would go on to say. He has exhorted them to accept God's discipline. That's hard. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. And and he develops that in the whole middle of chapter 12 that He will refine you as you're exhorted to run the race of the Christian life, sometimes that involves chastisement and correction to put us back on the way. When we're running that marathon and we begin to think, you know, there's a shortcut over there. I think that's going to lead me from mile 12 to mile 18 and I can take a shortcut. Sometimes in the Christian life, you want to take a shortcut. And what happens? God brings the rod of reproof. And says, no, I've got a determined course before you. Run the race with endurance the course that is set before you. He has urged them to resist sin and to perform good works under God. Hebrews 3.13 Encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let us consider how to stimulate one another unto love and good works. Remember when we were expounding that, that considering, what does that mean, let us consider? It means to put some effort, some mental effort and thought of how we can encourage one another day after day to love and good deeds. And then it goes on, verse 25, chapter 10, 25, not forsaking the gathering together, 
as is the habit of some. So this former pastor, the author, the writer, had heard that people had begun to become careless. They they weren't taking sin seriously. They were thinking of just going back to Judaism. There's all these things with warnings that he's challenging them to. But he hears that some, of all things, are forsaking the gathering. And so he says, as is the habit of some, don't forsake the gathering. So what does he mean when he says, bear with this exhortation? The writer is tactfully getting his hearer's attention to listen carefully. Now, of course, this this comes at the end of the letter. And if the letter is being read in one sitting, it's, it's enough to, don't just disregard what I'm saying. Think about the key things that I've addressed. Maybe it was something that was delivered on several occasions that they would listen more intently the second time around. We don't know. He may have anticipated some resistance with some who had begun to become careless, um, begun to not take the running of the race of the Christian life seriously. And actually, in brevity and ancient rhetoric, it was something that was to be respected and helped the listeners to be more receptive to the message. So I can imagine that the writer, someday, if you're a Christian, you'll, you'll meet him in heaven and we can pick his brain and say, how in the world did you keep this so short but so dense, right? Somehow he did. Now, if this was a three-hour, um, you know, if it took three hours to read, you're going to lose the hearers. And so in ancient rhetoric, it, it, it was actually said that the more brevity um, would attract the listeners to pay better attention We see him mention at least twice, as I went through the letter again this week, um, using self-control. For example, chapter 5 and verse 11. Actually, let's let's just turn back there with me. I'm not going to ask you to turn to all of them. But he's talking about Melchizedek, right? Melchizedek, um, an amazing uh, situation here, who had no genealogy and all of that. And in verse 10, He talks about, or verse 9, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him a source of eternal salvation, that is Christ, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He's beginning to lay the groundwork of how Christ's priesthood is far superior to that of the Levitical priesthood. And so he's building the argument that Christ comes from this other line, this Melchizedek line, and then look at verse 11. Concerning him, we have much to say, but it is hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. He wanted to talk more about Melchizedek. We have much to say, but he withholds. Likewise, in chapter 9 and verse 5, he's talking about the, um, the tabernacle, the Old Testament regulations of worship, where even the first covenant had regulations to divine worship. Implication? The new covenant has regulations too. We can't jump on one foot and hold balloons and sing happy birthday and jump in circles or do some drama or do cartwheels or whatever. We're to sing, pray, worship, observe the ordinances, and preach the word. And so anyway, here in verse 5, he says... And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. He could have just kept going on and on, but I can't speak in detail because I've got to keep this letter moving. 
Well, a couple of key things, uh, takeaways um, in regards to the hearers here. First of all, how did these brethren receive the word of God? He actually references that several times. And in chapter 2 and verse 3, just go ahead and turn back there. I'm going slower than I anticipated. Hopefully we'll be fine. But in chapter 2 and verse 3, in the midst of this first warning section, how shall we escape if we neglect so great of salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. What the writer is saying is that after it was initially given from the Lord, the original eyewitnesses, the apostles, right? It was them that conferred it unto him. And that's how one of the strongest reasons we know that the Apostle Paul most likely is not the author to Hebrews, because Paul saw the Lord face to face. But he's saying that it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So these are second generation, as it were, eyewitnesses of Christ. Chapter 4 and verse 2, for indeed we have the good news preached to us as they did also the wilderness generation, Moses, but... The word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So contrasting um, the, that Old Testament generation, the wilderness generation with them, um, that they had received the word because it was reunited uh, by faith. Chapter 6 and verse 5, and we have tasted of the good word of God and the powers to come. Chapter 10, verse 26, if we go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, okay, so they've received the knowledge of the truth, they had the good news preached to them, it was united by faith, it was the good word of God of which they tasted and which they believed. Secondly, remember their intense suffering in the midst of persecution. Um, Go ahead and turn back to chapter 10 and verse 32 with me. He says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing that you yourselves have a better possession and a lasting one. Historically, this congregation has probably been around for about 15 years. In AD 49, Claudius made an edict to expel all Jews, which included Christians, out of Rome. There was persecution there. They were banished there. Most Commentators believe that this is a reference to back AD 49, maybe 15 years ago. We're about 64, 65, Nero persecution heating up. And so what did those look like? Remember those former days when the, when the emperor Claudius put out this edict and, and, and you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. You were made a public spectacle. You, you endured great conflict of sufferings. Maybe the church went underground. Maybe they left for a season because this didn't last very long. Christians came back in. We don't know those things. We know that the writer knows of what they went through and was probably their pastor at the time. What these Christians experienced, besides what is given here, is not specifically told to us. 
But this whole idea of being made a spectacle is like to put on a stage and be like a derision, to mock and that kind of thing. That's what's implied there. Reproaches and insults. They had learned to do at that point, accepting joyfully the seizure of their property, what Christ taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Doesn't that sound exactly with this public spectacle? You're being derision, you know, being put on a stage and laughed at. It sounds just like this. He says what? Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, the author was, as I said, probably their pastor in early days. We don't know for how long. Uh, he's writing to them with passion and lo- out of a passionate love and concern. And so now there's the renewed threat of persecution. And so he, he's, he's writing them and encouraging them to stay steadfast, to run the race with endurance that's set before. How do they run? Fixing their eyes on Christ who's the author and perfecter of their faith, considering him, that mathematical calculation of considering his his perfect sinless life, his, his vicarious death on the cross by which he effected salvation for all of God's elect, consider him who endured such hostility by sinners so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. He's using these, this motivating language, Right? all throughout the letter. And by the way, we too should expect persecution. We're talking about at the picnic down there, fellowshipping with the dear saints, blue sky, breeze, beautiful weather down by the bay, and just really no threat whatsoever. It's just, it's an anomaly to the, the you know, 6,000 years, however long, of Christendom, of believers being on this earth. And so because of the danger of slipping, becoming careless, taking your eyes off of Christ, the writer gives five strong warning sections sprinkled throughout this letter. Let's turn back to Ma- or Matthew, uh, <laughs> Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5 and verse 11 to 14. Concerning him we have much to say, but it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Same word that he uses in chapter 6 and verse 12, so that you will not be sluggish, right? So dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, and you have need of someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, For he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Chapter 2 and verse 1. The real danger in drifting for this reason. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. There's a real danger of drifting. This, this adverb closer means all the more earnest that you not 
begin to drift away. It's a, it's a vivid warning using nautical language, sailing language as it were. And the imagery is, is that of a, a, a boat that's on water that perhaps is anchored, but the anchor loses its grip of the ocean floor and the boat just begins to start drifting, right? Does it rapidly in an instant go, you know, miles away? No, but it just slowly drifts. And that's the idea here. The author's not concerned that, that these hearers would just make a full U-turn, but that they would compromise and slowly drift away two to three degrees a day, right? Eventually, you're, you're, you are turned around, right? And so he strongly warns them. The Hebrews... Um, little compromise here, a little compromise there, a little considering returning to Judaism that would eventually allow them to lose their moorings so that they're drifting and they're in danger of hitting the rocks and being perished to destruction. Hebrews 2.3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Hebrews 6 it's impossible to renew them unto repentance if they have fallen away. But then he also reminds them of the superiority of the new covenant of which we read in chapter 8. Really, that really summarizes the, the entire book. Actually, verse 1. And the main point of what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of God of the throne of the majesty in heaven. But then he has this, again, another Old Testament exposition of Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. Not like that covenant with Israel and Judah. Not like I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand. After those days, says the Lord, what does he say? I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. It's really speaking of this uh, new covenant, true conversion of which God renews our minds and, and takes out the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh to where we long to do those things. And then he says, I will be their God. They will be my people. This possessive, this closeness, this family connection as it were. And then, I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Glorious promises of the new covenant. Well, let's consider secondly here um, the message of Hebrews concerning the superiority of Christ. We've already sort of touched on this, but I I want you to um, just consider this with me. Hebrews is set forth in a comparison motif. He's comparing one thing to another thing, right? Many of the biblical writers actually do that. You see that all the time in the book of Proverbs. It's, there's a theme of contrast and comparisons. The author accomplishes this through the use of certain words. And I think five words in particular, and I challenge you to find a time sometime in the next few weeks. Probably don't wait more than two weeks because you'll forget about this challenge. <laughs> Read through the entire book of Hebrews and circle or mark or write down every time you see these five words. Better, more, greater, perfect, and heavenly. 
You, you learn so much about the book of Hebrews, right? If you just keyed on those things, let's take each of these in turn. I'll just, and this is not exhaustive. I'm just giving you a sampling of how these words are used. Better, chapter 1 of verse 4, right at the very beginning. Having become a much, as much better than the angels as he inherited a more excellent name than they. Better than the angels. 722. So much the more, also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Chapter 8 and verse 6. Now, he has obtained a more excellent ministry by which he is also mediator of a better covenant enacted on better promises. That's the verse right before he quotes, he expounds Jeremiah 31, of which I just read. What is this mediator? A mediator is one who intervenes between two parties. That's what Jesus did. In fact, our Confession of Faith, the 1689, chapter 8, wonderful chapter, 10 paragraphs on Christ the mediator, but paragraph 1 says this, It pleased God and His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus Christ to be His only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both to be a mediator between God and man. The prophet, the priest, and the king, the head and the savior of the church, the heir of all things, the judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. It's a beautiful summary of the work of Christ. And, and if you study chapter 8, those 10 paragraphs, it goes back and forth between the person of Christ, the work of Christ. This is kind of a summary paragraph. It's a wonderful exposition of what Scripture teaches about Christ. And so he's, this idea of that it's enacted, that's a legal term. It's enacted on better promises. It's in the passive voice. God, the one, God is the one drawing up the covenant and enacting it. Philip Hughes, one of the commentators, says, by his, his high priestly work of atonement has activated better promises of the covenant, promises fulfilled and the cleansing of our consciences from the deadly contagion of sin and the planting of the love of God and His will in our hearts in the restoration of intimate fellowship with our Creator. And then chapter 12, verse 24, we just saw this recently, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So just as the blood of Abel cried from the earth for judgment, the blood of Christ speaks better than that of Abel. So that's better. Let's consider more. Some of these occur in the same verse. Again, Hebrews 1.4, having become much better than the angels, he has inherited a more excellent way than they. And 7.22, and so much the more, also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant, so much the more superior than the Levitical priesthood. Chapter 3 and verse 3, compared to the Glory of Moses, that Old Testament mediator, as it were, sort of a a type of what Christ would become. It says this, and he has been counted 
worthy of more glory than Moses. And just so much as the builder of the house, which has more honor than the house. Hebrews 8, 6, this more excellent ministry. More excellent to be different, to be superior. Remember, we're considering the the superiority of Christ. That is to say that he attained it, and now his earthly ministry has been completed. Christ has the victory and the right to achievement to that sanctuary above. In chapter 9, in verse 12 and 13, it says, Not by the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And if the blood of the goats and bulls and ashes and a heifer sprinkling, and those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. All the animal sacrifices, the millions of animals that were had the throat slit and was put on the altar, how much more effectual was that blood of Christ? And then the word greater, um, just uh, in verse 11 here, it says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. In 11.26, speaking of Moses, considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. The word perfect, 5.9, having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. 728, for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. And then heavenly 3.1, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. 8.5, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. 12.22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. So that's just a sampling of how the superiority of Christ has been set forth throughout this letter to us and the very words that he used. And then just going back to chapter 13, we want to consider a a few of these final comments that he gives, these final greetings, as it were. Verse 23, he says, Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. This, no doubt, is the Timothy that we all know and have grown to love, right? The apostle legate of Paul, uh, the, the, the one of his child in the faith, as it were. It seems to indicate that even in this book, there's a Pauline connection of some sort of which the leaders of the day knew each other and knew each other well. This would be welcome news to the hearers that probably had met Timothy at some time. Timothy as was associated with Paul in six of his letters, uh, the, the letters of the Apostle Paul. He is the recipient of two letters of Paul. 
He was in some kind of custody or prison for what we do not know, no doubt, for the Word of God, and, and has now been released. And the author knows this, and he's communicating that as a word of encouragement. At the time of writing, he's not in the same place as the author, though they had hoped to be joined together soon. And you see that here. That um, Take notice that our, our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Somehow a connection of Timothy coming to the author and then the author being able to then return back to them. Anyway, there's, there's something to be said here for this longing for face-to-face fellowship. We live in a, a post-COVID era of which people are content to watch YouTube videos and listen to sermons online, which is better than nothing, I'm not saying... but. There's no substitute for face-to-face fellowship and being together with one another. And so he says, oh, Timothy, Timothy, when if he comes to me soon, then I will make my way to see you and be reunited with you. Verse 24, you see here, he says, greet all your leaders. Remember this, it's in the plural, okay? We talked about a plurality of elders. Uh, which is the norm throughout the, 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 the entire Bible, um, especially the New Testament. But he's referenced the leaders three times. Back in chapter 7 of chapter 13, sorry, verse 7 of chapter 13, he says, Remember those that led you and spoke the word of God to you concerning the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. What he's saying is, remember those leaders who had led you in the past. And then in verse 17, obey your your current leaders and submit to them. And then here he's saying, greet all of your leaders on my behalf. And then he says, greet all of the saints as well. And so no doubt he's reinforcing their authority as leaders, of which he's mentioned twice. But then he also says, greet the saints. This is an important part of what we do on the Lord's Day is we greet one another. And Paul goes so far as to say with the holy kiss, that's up to you, <laughs> but, uh, but we greet one another, we encourage one another day by day. And then those in, from Italy greet you. Most think the author was outside of Italy for this season, writing to the people um, in Italy and Rome, um, and it refers to the Italians that were with him outside of Italy. And then verse 25, grace be with you all. Very common way that many of the New Testament letters end. Well, a couple of points of application. Have you listened well to the the epistle to the Hebrews, to the message of the Hebrews? Have you listened well? Do you hunger for the milk and the meat of the Word? Remember, he had criticized them, or really just called it as it was, that, that now... We can't, we, I can't give you meat anymore. You, you've come to need milk. You should be mature. You should be teachers by now. And there should be a longing for us to continue to grow in our understanding of who Christ is and the gospel, but even the, the teaching of the Word of God. I've been blessed beyond all measure. What a privilege it has been to take this time to go through this book. Has Hebrews made a difference in your life? Ask yourself that. Do you see Christ in a new way? Do you have a better understanding of His function as your great high priest in heaven who intercedes for you? 
that He's ready, willing, and able to attend unto your needs. You have a renewed appreciation for the new covenant. Right? Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we talk about the new covenant. Our iniquities are remembered no more because Christ satisfied the very wrath of God. Secondly, we must endure by looking to the future in faith. Those exhortations in chapter 12 are are so important. Consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In spite of hateful opposition, Jesus endured the cross. You need endurance. It implies that the Christian life is not always going to be easy. The wind's not always going to be at your back. You should expect difficulties and troubles and trials to come, not only from without, but from within, and from, from even family members that might come. But we don't, we're not ruled by our feelings. We're ruled by the truth of the Word of God. Success in the Christian life requires patience when we face suffering and trials. It's a a reworking of our minds so that we can count it all joy when we encounter various trials. And then even when you're encountering those, as we're studying in our men's group, the book of James, you you can lack wisdom. You don't understand. If any man lack wisdom, let him what? Ask of God, who gives liberally to all. There's discouragement in the Christian life. There's sometimes when you just feel like giving up, but you can't. There's nowhere else to go, right? There's nowhere else to go. Some who begin the Christian race, they begin running with endurance. They're like that shallow ground here in the parables that Jesus tells about. The one that, you know, it sprouts up on the shallow soil right away, but then the sun of persecution comes and it withers away and it shows that it will never bear any fruit. Some begin well. Some some run with great endurance initially set before them, but they take their eyes off of Christ and they prove that they never knew Christ. And they end up being apostates. Oh, with a biblical knowledge, with, with understanding some of the things that's taught in the Word of God, but lacking the new life and the Holy Spirit. Lacking a genuine conversion experience. Christians, as you endure these difficulties, in the midst of it, your joy will be renewed as you keep your eyes on Christ. Anticipation of our glorious future helps us to endure what we deal with in the present, right? We're not just ruled by our circumstances of today or maybe tomorrow, but we're looking to the future. 1 John 2, 28. Now little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. For you know that He is righteous, and you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. It goes on to say in chapter 3 and verse 2, Beloved, now we are the children of God. It has not yet appeared as yet what we will be, but we know this, that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him. Just as he is, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, for he is pure. Knowing that that is your future, 
can affect your disposition in the present to endure these things. Persevering and confident hope requires mental efforts. And this is why we just can't live moment by moment and be ruled by our circumstances. We need the big picture. That's why we need the means of grace. That's why we need to be in worship. That's why we need one another. That's why we need to be reminded of the truth of the Word of God. Because it helps shape us as we hear God's truth, as we're reminded of the promises of God. True Christians are assured of victory. It's not a question mark. It's not, gee, I hope you're assured of final victory. Because Jesus Christ was victorious on the cross, rose with great power from the dead, and the resurrection, our victory is sure. But if you're outside of Christ and you're not a Christian and you're here today, you must repent, you must believe, you must run to Jesus Christ. Maybe you sit here and say, I don't think God exists. What a foolish thing to say, by the way. Maybe you're one that says, I believe God exists, but I I know He's watching me and I just got to do and I got to do and I got to do and I got to do more good works. And you get on the treadmill of good works and do you make any progress? No, you're just flipping the treadmill, right? You're not making any real progress. That's what trying to earn salvation by good works is like. Look, John 1.12, For as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in His name. How does this happen? It says, Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Born of God. Born again. Jesus is the only way of salvation. And if you're thinking today, well, I'm a pretty righteous guy, I'm a good guy. Well, you know what? Jesus himself said, I did not come to save the righteous, but sinners. Admit that you're a sinner. Confess your sins. Repent and come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to worship and freedom even this very day. We pray, O oh God, that we would not be forgetful hearers of the truths that we've learned in this wonderful book. Lord, we pray that our lives would be impacted for good as a result of studying these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.